Hey everyone, this is Identity 3, a podcast all about digital identity and Web3. And it's my pleasure today to be joined by Anders Borg Sundgren. Welcome, Anders. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to, great to have you on. Um, you're the CEO of True ID. Um, so could you tell us, uh, the listeners, a little bit more about yourself and also a little bit about the company that you founded? Sure. Uh, I can start with myself. Uh, so I'm a Swede uh, living in Stockholm. I grew up in the north of Sweden. Um, I have a background, I have a business degree from the Stockholm School of Economics. And in the beginning of my career, I spent a lot of time working in advisory roles. I was a management consultant, uh, I worked in private equity. And then I came to the conclusion that I really didn't like just being on the side. I wanted to sort of be in a real business, if you will. Uh, so I switched and, and was really lucky to to get a job in the uh, Dun & Bradstreet ecosystem. So I worked with Dun & Bradstreet's biggest European partner called Biznode, and I spent close to six years there. Um, it's actually, the Biznode doesn't exist anymore. It's actually been acquired by Dun & Bradstreet now. Um, but it was a really, really good experience with working with data analytics during that time. Um, after that, I, I did a stint as the CEO of FinTech, and then I founded TrueID. Fantastic. So it sounded like there was a very kind of a big emphasis on the kind of financial institutions. And of course, what we find is they're often some of the earliest adopters of identity solutions because of compliance issues and things like that. So it sounds like that that was your journey as well. Yeah. And, and I, so I come from, I mean, you can, a lot of people working with identity come from it from a security perspective. And I come from it from a data perspective. And it, it, I, I realized that when I talk to people that I sometimes have a little bit of a different perspective on 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 uh, what's happening in identity and where the market is going. So I, I find that sort of the combination of the security aspect and the data aspects to be really interesting. And of course, financial institutions and in general customers of, of data analytics companies are really focused on automating data flows and getting those to work sort of uh, API based and, and, and doing integrations doing automated credit decisions, doing automated data updates, automated targeting uh, in, 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 in sales. And in all of these instances, you really need to do, be good at data matching. And to do that, you need to be really good at identity. So that's sort of, that's where I'm coming from. Got it, that's perfect. And can you tell us a little bit, or tell me a little bit more about TrueID, Anders? I founded TrueID um, around two years ago. Uh, we're a team now of, of 10 uh, located in Stockholm, and uh, we uh, have a global ambition with our product. So we, we, uh, we've been spending a lot of time building because doing a trust-based product, you can't really sort of launch something that you just kind of uh, put together with duct tape. It really has to work. Uh, so we launched a product during the spring, uh, and we now have our first customers integrated, and we're seeing good traction. And basically what we're doing is we're offering a global reusable identity, a digital identity wallet, where we want to let users build a, um, a rich identity and also a high assurance level identity. Um, and we're focusing on, in the beginning, sort of the first version of the product, we're focusing on making sure that people can prove their legal identity and important touch points that they have. And then we're adding attributes over time into the wallet to get, help people in solving very specific use cases tied to identity. And congratulations on those early customers. They can often be the hardest ones to obtain. <laughs> yeah, you're very right about that. So it, it's, I mean, we're starting to see the first pull. We've been pushing and pushing and pushing. You're starting to feel the first pull on the market and it's, it's a really great experience. Uh, I mean, we're not at a situation when we're sort of a completely established player, but, but, the, but it's looking promising. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think as we get into the conversation, um, Anders, like, I think someone, one of the areas to focus on is because it's, it's uh, where you're at in terms of that go-to-market strategy and finding product market fit, I'm guessing, is, is, is a large uh, focus for you right now, as it is for us at Doc. So it'd be interesting to, to get into that conversation with you and understand a little bit more about uh, your wins and challenges in those areas as we go through. Before we do that, though, um, you, you talked a little bit in the intro about um, some of the kind of importance of, of digital identity. Uh, when in, when did you first realize its importance uh, and, and what, what were you doing at that time? Well, I think 
it's a bit special if you're coming from Sweden and you work in an international context or you travel, because we have a, a national EID solution called Bank ID that lets Swedes automate a lot of things that are done manually or semi-manually in other markets. It's really, really efficient. Like you have your own reusable identity and you use it when you log on to the bank, when you pay your taxes, when you um, file an insurance claim. And these days, even when you're logging into your uh, a broadband supplier or your TV uh, vendor, or sorry, not, uh, yeah, you know what I mean. Um, and, um, it's a really, really great system, and, and there's nothing really like it outside of the Nordics and the Baltic states, although there are sort of emerging strong national EID solutions. So, so there, I, I, we definitely, I think all Swedes really sort of have seen uh, the value of having a digital identity that works across touch points, and the reusability is sort of the main driver. So that's one aspect, I think, generally for me. And then the second one, as I talked about before, Working with, with master data management, data analytics, everything is about matching records from different sources, different databases, and building a persistent view. It could be on a person, it could be on a company, and building a rich, persistent view over time, sometimes referred to as a golden record. And the only really way to do that is to have a concept of identity that's stable over time, because it's that identity concept, or what we also would call a persistent identity, that allows you to really kind of do all of the things you want to do from a master data management perspective. I think one of the things that we'll maybe get into as we go through as well is like, I guess we're taking data from different uh, sources to build up these more elaborate, more detailed pictures of, of somebody else. But I guess that's where you start to get into why we're all so passionate, or certainly in this um, podcast, about decentralization, because one of the, the issues that you might have is where you have these extremely detailed pictures and that data is centrally held somewhere. The risk is potentially quite significant uh, that if that's held and, and obviously you can only secure data for so long in a centralized location. Just over time, it probably will get hacked at some point. So I guess that's that's one of the things to overcome when we're building up these really rich um, tapestries of information about uh, an individual. Uh, storing those in a secure way uh, is highly important. And I guess that's a big driver for you at TrueID. The origin story of TrueID is basically a friend of mine. I, I, um asked me, Anders, where's the European bank ID? Because he had built a really good service for Sweden. He wanted to go abroad. And I knew that there wasn't anything like that. But it got me thinking about a project that I've been doing a few years back when I was working at Visno, the, the Dunder Bradstreet partner. And it was really clear way, way back. I mean, we're talking about 10 years ago, um, five to 10 years ago, that the future of managing personal identity would have to become decentralized. And the writing was really on the wall when GDPR was created, I would say, because the only way for you to really manage the consent requirements of GDPR is to have the person, individual person owning their own identity. Um, and there's also a second really big benefit about with that when you're talking about data matching, because if you're working with databases and you try to match data from different uh, sources, being sure exactly who's who in the different sources is actually really difficult. That's one of the reasons why these big data brokers and then data vendors exist because they're really, really good at matching. But even how good they are, having the actual individual um, itself join in the matching process and sort of uh, say, yes, this is me, this is my record, or this is not my record. There's a completely different order of magnitude in the terms of matching you can do. So if you combine the requirements of integrity and, and consent with the advantages when it comes to data matching and building a really rich profile, it was really clear to me working um, in the DMB's ecosystem that the future would have to go in this direction. It kind of made sense for everyone. It was a kind of a win-win-win, if you will. Win for the person, win for businesses, and win for society as a whole. But I never really figured out what the entry point could be because we all know that getting people to take control of something that they currently don't have, I mean, there's a change of behavior there. And 
then it really struck me uh, during COVID and with that question about European bank ID that doing not only sort of identity verification, but actually repeatedly authenticating yourself against services and doing that securely, that's a situation where you are actually in charge and you have to be sort of conceptually, you, you are the person authenticating yourself. So if you could tie the identity to the process of, of proving continuously who you are across touch points and you could kind of get a foothold in a use case where that makes sense, then you could kind of start, you have a starting point and then you could build from there. So that that's basically where we started. And then, I mean, for people working in the reusable identity space, this is no news. I mean, we all kind of came to the same conclusion. It was just my my way of getting there, but, but that, that's where we started. And I think one of the challenges then, Anders, is uh, the thing about decentralized identity and or verifiable credentials is there's no shortage of use cases. Like we could probably each rhyme 20 off the top of our heads right now. However, what we've come to find and even in the reusable identity model is, is the business model is not always straightforward. And so often that can be because sometimes the beneficiary of this new technology is often the holder, the individual who might receive a, a credential from a bank or from a government, and, and they can then reuse that elsewhere. But of course, they do not, they will do not, and I don't think ever will want to pay for those solutions because they don't today. That's quite a challenge to, to get them to turn. So in, in terms of business model, ultimately who pays for all this stuff can be tricky. And so what's the business model of identity? And so I was keen to pick on, on that with yourself, not least because I've been following you on LinkedIn and I know you're doing fundraising things and, and you talked at the start about getting some customers. So I know go to market is, is very uh, a big issue for you right now. Can you tell me, like, how do you think about some of those, uh, you know, uh, what's your like revenue models and what's your go to market strategy at, at TrueID? Sure. Um... And, and and to be just fundamentally clear, we haven't cracked product market fit in the sense that we have like a thousand customers paying and we have, uh, or that we are break even in terms, yet in terms of our business. So we're still, I would say we're still in discovery mode, but we learned a lot of really important things and we started to figure out what works. So so we're in a good place and, and we're seeing things go in the right way. Um, and we've been doing a lot of discovery, talking to a lot of businesses. Um, and in one area where we started, it was an obvious thing that today companies are paying two to five euros or dollars to do ident identity verification one-off when they're onboarding a new customer. It's a really painful process for the user. It's costly for the business. It's not an ideal situation at all. And, and yet we've seen companies making really, really big revenue in this area because of legal requirements, security risk, etc. So we talked to a lot of companies doing this and saying, what if we would cut the, cut the cost of this by 90% and you have a solution where you can just integrate with us, you don't need to manage anything. It's a simple OpenID Connect integration. It will take you a few hours so you can just get sort of ready-made uh, users or customers in your system. Um, and we saw initially like the first meeting would be great and then started talking about, oh, okay, but you're doing this in identity wallet. So that means that they need to onboard with you. You have a service, you're currently working with an app and we can come back to that sort of, uh, where do you put your wallet? Um, and we already have a solution now. Uh, so uh, when we are evaluating changing that, let, let's, let's have a talk again. So we quickly realized that sort of the, the one of situation, although the current system, it's not good at all. A lot of companies kind of, once they did the integration, they don't want to go back. They want to, don't want to redo it again. So one area where we're targeting in the market and where we're seeing some interest is in companies that haven't chosen a solution to begin with. And then they can see the value. But where we really shine, where our quality really, where we really make a difference is when we tie the verified identity to a passwordless multi-factor authenticator that's really smooth and simple to use. And we do that in a closed loop. So you have a verified identity tied to an authenticator. You can kind of think of it as a combined ID selfie solution and the Microsoft authenticator. Um, and that makes a lot of sense for some businesses because they don't only do IDV once for compliance reasons. 
and really don't care who they're having as a customer. They actually really need to know who's logging in every day, who's signing the agreements, who's accessing the sensitive data, who's verifying transactions. And in those situations, the combination of a high security level with a smooth user experience for repeat authentication, that's where, I, that's where we really fit. And that's where we see the traction now. Um, so those are the use cases. And then the second aspect of this is about the community. So we strongly believe that the only way to win is to have a user base that actually likes our product and that is they're using it repeatedly with perhaps a single vendor or a service that they're using frequently every week, ideally. And then they like it and then they say, perhaps I could use this with another service so we could actually get the user base to help us to find more business customers. Basically, sort of solving the cold start problem and, and, and building a network-based business. Um, and then you want to target the community that is working with identity across different vendors in an ecosystem. And we're seeing traction currently in clear traction in two ecosystems, and then we're seeing sort of an interest in a couple more. Uh, one of them, it's, it's um, entrepreneurs and investors and, and corporate administrators and business administrators that are working with uh, governance and, and finance and, and similar for companies. So you might be managing your shareholder registry, you might be managing your board meetings, uh, inter interactions with your shareholders, uh, buying and selling, and you're doing that in a SaaS product. And in those situations, you typically have a multinational user base. So doing the few countries that have a national EID is not going to be good enough for you. And security is paramount and there's a compliance need. And that we're seeing, we have a few customers signed and we're seeing tractions and we're, we're, we're onboarding new customers going forward. And the second, which is a little bit adjacent, is in the freelancer economy. So people doing remote work. Uh, there are a lot of situations where you need to know, you want to do background checks. Uh, you want for compliance reasons to verify identity. There are tax issues that you need to handle. Uh, and consultants remote sometimes manage sensitive uh, data and they do sensitive work. So you're doing, uh, they're signing uh, NDAs and then they're accessing sort of sensitive systems. And in those situations, having an authenticator that's tied to identity if you're never meeting the person, they're sitting in another country, that's a big benefit. So that's also an area where we're seeing, seeing traction. And then, Interesting. Yeah. sorry, yeah, go ahead. No, please go ahead, Anders. Sorry, I thought you were finished. Please keep going. <laughs> Talk about my business forever. Um, oh, so good. Online marketplaces is another area where we're seeing sort of interest. And then uh, there's a couple of more candidates. Um, there's also sort of communities that are currently not matching identity at, at all that are very exciting, but, 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 um, you know how it is, you're a small company. So now we're still in discovery mode, but we're starting to, to kind of target our efforts. And, and once we feel like now we really have a foothold, we're gonna go really, really focused on one to max two communities and kind of show, approve ourselves, getting that to work, getting the network to really start getting engaged. And then after that, we can scale. It's interesting when you talk, because you know, we're going through a similar phase as well. And quite often you can see everything line up for you uh, in terms of your solution solves a problem, you can demonstrate a business benefit. But sometimes, like you said at the start, like sometimes it can be too big of a change for, for the business at the start. And so that can either remove the desire to change at all, or it can slow it down significantly to the point where the sales cycle is so slow that you have to look somewhere else. Like that's not going to work for you. You think I'll put a pin in that one and come back to it. So that's an interesting thing. We, we found that as well uh, on our journey. Um, and even it's interesting, you know, trying to look through all these different, sometimes quite different use cases and markets. It's extremely fun and also extremely frustrating as well because, uh, you know, like, you know, it, you put a lot of time and effort in and, and these are not things that you can uh, just make subtle changes. Like it, it, you typically would have to then really focus on that market sector, test it, Maybe building some some landing pages, coming up with a specific like business proposition as to why they should be interested or why they should care, and spend time doing that, only to realize that it, it just, for whatever reason it's not working. So, yeah, we found the the process hugely enjoyable ourselves, but also 
uh, also like banging your head off a wall sometimes. So it's 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 fun and uh, frustrating in equal measure. I can completely, uh, well, I, I completely agree with with, with that sentiment um, or or, or uh, that experience. Um, so there are a couple of, of of things that we have realized, and one of them is that our solution could potentially create some value everywhere. But we need to go find situations where we're creating a lot of value now, and that means typically we're solving a pain. Uh, So we want to be focusing on situations where companies are really struggling. And we find that fear (laughs) is is the best driver. So if people, and, and, and currently there's, for good reason, I would say, and it's going to get way worse. People or companies are starting to realize the problems with identity theft and fraud. Um, compliance has been a really big driver historically, but I think, and especially when it comes to some industries like identity verification in gaming, uh, eye gaming. But I think going forward, fraud is going to be the big driver, and and AI is going to be the main underlying technology enabling industrial scale fraud. Uh, so uh, that, that I think for us, and that's where we're seeing also when we're getting that discussion going with, with customers, we're, it's a much, much faster sell than we could actually sort of, our, our solution really, really solves the problem, not only kind of adds a little bit of benefit. Yeah, you do need that urgency as well, don't you, in these markets? Like you need a strong urgency to motivate uh the company buying your solution to get them over the line because sometimes i mean selling people based on security being more secure it it can be a tough road um and often what people buying solutions it's either i get more features or my bottom line improves or my top line improves and those are, are typically good things to focus on um anders in your model who is who's paying uh because i think there's the cold start problem that often exists within this sector and just quickly the, the cold start problem for those not familiar is that again who pays for all of this all of this technology so you might have someone who's who's going into a solution creating these identities issuing these credentials and the issue because you need those entities to exist first otherwise no credentials exist in the system uh, but the problem is like what what's their motivation for issuing these credentials uh, because at the moment in many places a monetization, a clear monetization model does not exist. We can promise them things down the road, but ultimately that's the, the, the issue that we have. And so with that cold start problem, how are TrueID, who's um, actually kind of buying your solution? Is it the, is it the end user, the holder, or is it the, the entity or the, the person issuing um, and using your wallet? When it comes to credential and credential issuing, I, I think there's one business model here when it comes to verifiable credentials. And I think we probably going to come back to that in this discussion. It's a really fascinating, um, let's call it paradigm, uh, that we're really, we, we're really waiting for it and eagerly waiting for it to start becoming big. Um, but we, we chose and we've done that sort of derib- deliberately. We're very pragmatic in our approach and we, we decided let's go for credentials that are ex- that exist today and that have processes today that work. And that's why we chose global identity verification as one credential system. So there are methods today that work and that have a legal protection for verifying your identity. Um, the best solution for from a security perspective is the e-passport solution. So we have a, an agreement with the UN uh, organization called ICAO that is the standard body for all e-passports. And, and we read the chip in the passport uh, with the wallet and, and create a copy of the passport in our wallet. And then the user verifies that it's their identity. First step is to do it with an ID selfie, sort of uh, um, an AI driven face match and liveness check. And then the second step, we're also looking at triangulating that data perhaps with sources like open banking. But we, ne- we don't think that the user, as you said, will ever pay for this solution. We think it's like a credit card. When you're paying with a credit card, you are in effect paying per transaction for the use of this card, but you're doing it by uh, a fee that the the um, the, uh, the shop that you're that you're buying from sort of is has to pay for 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 the the card and the payment, 
and we think it's going to be the same with uh, with identity uh, on the internet. So the businesses will have to pay, but they will only pay in situations where it makes sense to use the service. And today, this is already happening. It's happening with identity verification, and it's happening also when it looks when when it comes to multi-factor authentication. So authentication services also cost money, and those those are paid for the businesses. And and we have created our pricing stra strategy to fit with with those types of, of costs that companies are currently incurring uh, for uh, authentication. So we're basically using a flat fee model with all you can eat. So you can have an ongoing secure relationship with the user and you pay um, a, a, a small monthly fee or annual fee to, to maintain that relationship. And we think that kind of makes sense for everyone because it's a type of cost that companies are having today. So it's not sort of a, a new behavior for them. And and it's it, it doesn't cost the user anything, but but it's baked into the whole to the whole service that they are consuming. Yeah, I mean, I th so I think that that's really interesting. I'd like to come back to to that as well because I think that um, the tools that people use are important as well. Like some uh, people like using wallets and they're comfortable with them, and others not so much. And I think I've also seen that some companies are comfortable passing wallets or, or different applications onto their user base because. Maybe they're quite web savvy. We've seen others that are horrified that we might give them another application or, or an application to download. Uh, and so we can maybe come back to, to the question about how we manage all that data. Um, so um, yeah, I, but going back also to the Swedish bank ID and sorry for kind of jumping about a little bit, Anders, but you spoke a little bit about that. Um, and there's other examples of, of, of other kind of national ID. I think Canada seems to be the one that a lot of people kind of hold up uh, as a shining light. Estonia does uh, similar things as well. In terms of Sweden's bank ID, um, it has good points, but also um, it's potentially difficult with regards to, to managing data integrity. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? The Swedish bank ID was created in a consortium of the big banks and it's piggybacking on the bank's KYC. So we have a quite, we have a bit of an oligopoly when it comes to the banking sector in Sweden, uh, or we had, I would say, because we've actually, in, in the last 10 years, we've seen a lot of fintech startups that have taken market share, but we had a, a monopoly when the, when the consortium was, uh, oligopoly when the consortium was founded. Uh, and a lot of people think that it's, okay, the banks are, are, are doing the KYC and then they're sort of managing the identity of the user. That's actually not true. So the, the secret source of the magic of, of, of Bank ID is that we have something called a personal number in Sweden. It's a number that you get when you're born. It's your birth date and then four digits. And it's a number that follows you uh, uh, over your life and is used in all situations when you're interacting with any kind of, of uh, government service, regulated service. So it's the tax, it works as the tax identification number. It's the number that you will find in the company house records if you're representing a company. It's a number that will be tied to your driving license, to your car ownership, to everything. So it's one number that, that kind of is you in all databases and systems in Sweden. And what Bank ID does is that it simply it points to, it's a way to say, I am the holder of this number. I am this person. That, that's the only thing it does. There's no sort of other backend beneath it than that. Um, and it works wonders when it comes to automating processes, to integrating to systems, to uh, sort of automate decisions, etc. And it creates really good e-government services. So paying taxes in Sweden, you can you can do it with an SMS. Because, because everything is sort of compiled, all the data is sent from, the, from your employer, etc. It's really, really good. I mean, of course, the huge drawback, and everybody outside of Sweden will realize this, is that from an integrity perspective, it's absolutely awful. Because with this number, you can track everything about a person. You can track the uh, what they pay, sort of where they live, uh, who they're married to, their children, sort of what they... Yeah, what they're owning, everything is tied to this one number. And and most countries in the world would never accept a system like that because people actually want to have privacy and integrity. Is that publicly yes. accessible information uh, in Sweden? So could you actually, or is it only, do you mean in terms of you can track, does that mean people that have access, like admin access to these systems that maybe work for government can track? Or, or is that information 
publicly available somewhere where a, a private individual could go and spy on another private individual and find out what they've been up to? Theoretically, uh, some of the databases are, are closed. So there's a credit, a positive credit registry tied to this number for everybody in Sweden, and not everybody has access to read it. Uh, there are a couple of other, like your medical records are tied to it, and they're not sort of publicly accessible, then you need to sort of pr prove who you are to read them. Um, but of course, no system is perfect. So if you know somebody on the inside or you have a friend, you could, with this number, it's very, very easy to check. And it means that in essence, if you want to know something about a person, it's really, really simple. Uh, and then a lot of the data is actually completely public as well. Wow. So wow. all of the, what everybody's earned, like your wages, what the taxes you pay, that's completely public. Um, and why do we have this in Sweden? Well, I think we have it because we have been for a very long time a high trust society. So people in Sweden trust the government. We never really had any sort of dictatorships like you had in Germany or, or anything like that. And so, so people just got used to the system and they saw the benefits of it. And, and you have to understand that there are huge benefits to this because it's, everything is so simple. You have this one number and it kind of, it's, it's a key that opens all the locks. So, so it's really, really practical. But it's also the integrity from integrity perspective really bad, and and what's happened in the last few years, which is kind of scary, is that you've seen more and more organized criminals actually using this to map sort of targets, so so they're finding out who to rob or who to fraud or uh, commit fraud towards based on data that they can collect in in, in public systems. So there is a growing understanding that there's actually challenges to the system. But 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 this also means that you can't say, okay, a bank ID is a great system in Sweden, let's just export it to other countries, but that will never work. I mean, it would, would completely, it would be a political outrage. And I mean, some countries is actually sort of illegal to even to attempt to build a system like this. And the UK, I know as well, has, has often pushed back against, whether it's a national ID scheme, uh, they've often pushed back very hard uh, on, on that. But it sounds like there's a lot of benefits there, Anders. Do you see a solution to, to the, the problems of, of that information being centrally held and potentially something that can be used to, to spy on people? Is there a way that you can take some of the benefits so that you obviously clearly derive in Sweden and eliminate some of the issues? Yes. Um, and, and first of all, I would say that if we see a, a sort of a large scale of adoption of one or a couple of decentralized identity ecosystems, the process of managing a decentralized identifier or a DID, that, that will solve this problem if you, if you do it right. Um, that, that's a big if, I would say, because there's also challenging in having multiple DIDs, but, but in theory, you could get that to work in these systems. So, so that, that's one way to go. Uh, we have chosen a pragmatic approach. We, we have an identity wallet and we said, let's be technology agnostic here. We don't know which uh, future paradigms will, will sort of be the winners, but we need to solve the problem now. So what we're currently offering in our solution is an identity graph to each and every user. So if you're a user, you create an identity with us in the wallet. Uh, all the data is encrypted in the wallet. You have one of the encryption keys on your device, meaning that we cannot read your data, but you get a persistent identifier, sort of a true ID identifier that follows you across over time. And so that's, we have a persistent identifier for you. You're always the same person. And then we create a link ID for every connection you make. So if you have 10 connections with the wallet, they're gonna have a persistent identity on you that's, that only they can use, that, that sort of can't be shared with third parties. And even if there's a hacker that sort of breaks in and kind of get access to this data, this hacker cannot read sort of the content of, of the connections or the data transfers with the other nine connections that you have. And uh, the advantage with a graph like this is that then you could also start tying more attributes to these, these um, um, specific identity sort of link IDs or link identities um, add specific like uh, company signing rights could be relevant in one instance or some other attribute in another instance. So, so this identity graph solves the problem with integrity and it does it in a scalable way with technology that works today and where people don't have to sort of adopt a, a decentralized identity ecosystem in order to make it work. 
that said, our wallet can also, of course, store DITs as well. So, so VCs and DITs. So, so we're we're not against sort of this hopeful future decentralized identity development. We just said we need to solve the problem now with with technology that we have today. We can't wait for for an ecosystem to sort of win out before we can launch our product. Excellent. Yeah, and so that pragmatic approach that you've taken that you mentioned earlier. The, the the public is the link ID that you mentioned that, that would enable um, I guess individuals or entities um, the ability to uh, maybe share information with the the identifier uh, is that like a public should I think about that in the same way that I'm thinking about public and private keys I'm thinking that link identity is a public identity that's shared and that only the individual with also the corresponding private part, the private key to that identity can actually then make claims or statements. Uh, is that the right way to think about it? Yes, yes, yes. So so conceptually, that's exactly the right way to think about it. And more sort of very simply put, you could think about it as if you have, a, uh, if you're a business and you have a data repository of your customers, you might have a customer ID uh, in your CRM, for example, and you could tie a one-to-one link between your customer ID and your CRM to this ID that you're getting from us that is tied to, to a persistent identity. And, and that link, if you're having really high quality data in your CRM, that, that's sort of just sort of a, kind of a link that's maintained. The really big advantage comes with our services that if you're establishing a relationship between a user and a business, you also get access to a, an API where you can continuously update data from the user as long as the user consents to this. So you can sort of, if the user is changing their address or there's something else that's email address, etc., you can automatically pull this data from the user via our, the 2ID API and using the key infrastructure to make sure that, that this is done securely. And and the second order benefit is if you're a bigger company, like a lot of, of, of big companies have, they actually have not have one, they don't have one repository where all of the customer data is stored. They have a lot of different systems. They have poor quality in them. They have kind of shit identifiers that they use. So they would use an email address for as an identifier, which we all know is not the great solution. Uh, and they really have a hard time getting these systems to talk to each other. So if you would use True ID as an authenticator to log, log in across these different systems with the user, you could with the business, you could actually tie all of these identities and, and kind of build the master data management solution from the outside using the user as the as the key. So that that's one of the sort of the dream scenarios for us, or the sort of a nirvana state for us is a large enterprise using us as an authenticator to really kind of manage master data management. Uh, um, in, in a scalable and very, very simple and automated way. Yeah, and it sounds like it makes it much more portable and, and helps overcome some of the data siloing that, that you explained that not only exists between companies, but also within companies as well. Right. You spoke a lot about the, 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 the persistent identifier um, there, uh, Anders. Um, obviously, I, I spoke a little bit earlier on, as, as I tend to do because of what we do at DOC, but obviously verifiable credentials. So. Once you have the ident- identifier, then you can actually make claims about or to that, that identifier. And that, that's obviously where some of this technology really starts to, to get very powerful. Um, what's your own interest in verifiable credentials and, and where are you seeing the kind of the benefits and use cases um, for, for that technology? I, I think the future has to include verifiable credentials. Um, and I think conceptually there are there are credentials that even if they're not sort of using the technology um, that we, we, when we think about verifiable credentials, we think about it as a technology and we think about it as sort of a process. And and we have processes today, as I said, for example, the e-passport where you have a centralized registry where all of the passports that have been issued are actually sort of listed and there are revocation lists, et cetera. That system kind of works like a, the way you would set up a very well credential system. So there are some instances where these systems with sort of an, perhaps an older technology are used today. But I think if you can get verifiable credentials the way we talk about it in the decentralized identity space to really take a foothold, you're gonna have that system at scale and for pretty much any important attribute. And and for us who want to build a rich identity with many attributes and see 
the value of our service and kind of letting a user kind of pick and choose about which are the attributes to share with, with different with different uh, businesses or with different counterparts and doing that sort of in a smooth way. The verifiable credentials is, is if we get that to work, it's going to be fantastic. Um, and, and as you said, we, we talk a lot about identity persistence because we we see that that it's really important, but you can, with the combination of a persistent identity and a verifiable credential system, you can kind of get the best of two worlds because you can get, in some instances, you can let a, a person show that they have had the same verifiable credential over time across a lot of different touch points. You could actually sort of score an identity based on the persistence. Whereas in other situations, the, the VC framework allows you to only do a one-off data send and then forget about everything. So in some instances, you don't want to have any history. And in some instances, you want to have all of the history. And you can do both with the system, which I think is really, really great. So I'm, I'm, I'm really rooting for you guys who are kind of kind of building this infrastructure and making it work at scale. And we're we're very eagerly sort of waiting for, for the first really big adoptions to take place. Yeah, and hopefully I think we'll start to see that. I mean, there's, there's certainly been some signs, um, obviously with the EIDAS stuff taking place in Europe around the digital identity wallets. Um, I think we also see it with, with LinkedIn, although it's kind of hard to know, obviously owned by Microsoft and, and uh, you know, potentially starting to, to uh, issue credentials out to LinkedIn using, uh, I think it's Microsoft Entra Verified ID. And there's a few other things happening as well. So hopefully we are starting to see uh, things move more quickly in the market. But thanks for your support as well, Anders. I mentioned earlier on talking about, uh, just coming back to an earlier point on, once you've got these credentials and identities, what do we do with them? And so um, a wallet is, is obviously what, what people talk about, but there's many different forms of wallets. Uh, things like having as a separate application can give you a lot more, maybe more security. Um, but there's potentially more UX friction there. You need to go and download it. What happens if you lose your phone, et cetera? Have you backed it up? Um, so, so there's that. And the the other uh, middle ground maybe you can have is, is also like a web wallet or a cloud wallet where you have something that's potentially stored, maybe access it with an internet browser that doesn't require the friction of a download, but then it's maybe a little bit harder to secure um, as well. But you sometimes get some of the same features in a way that maybe some users find more familiar. What's your place with that, like with, with True ID? Are you thinking purely application-based wallet, web wallet also? How do you think about that? A great question. I just wanted to say about VCs before I forget, you, you talked earlier about sort of where, where you would see traction. I, I, I've been talking to several potential customers that really want the system to work, and especially in the freelancing sector, having verifiable credentials about your your past work assignments, your your diplomas, etc. There's a lot of scamming going on, a lot of fraud. So, so there are people, there are companies that really want this to happen. I think the challenge is to get the, the issuers to kind of agree on a format. Coming back to the question about uh, wallets, or sorry, and sort of cloud-based versus device-based. So, so I have a very strong opinion about this, and I think that purely device-based wallets, it's not the way to go. Uh, and the reason is what you said about losing your phone. I mean, recoverability. Um, we've seen this in crypto with people having a lot of money and then they lose the device. It could be a USB stick or a phone and they lose all of their assets. And I, I, if you're looking at identity, it has to be a system that works for most people. And then losing your identity because you're losing your phone, it's, it's a horrible, I think, situation. So, so I, I don't think if you want to have mass adoption that it's ever going to be a viable solution. And, and we've opted for a cloud-based wallet. Um, and that said, because we're targeting, we, we, we're saying to companies, let's, let's forget about the trade-off between user experience and security. So Yes, there's, you need to onboard. So there needs to be a situation where the user does sort of the pain of onboarding once, but after that, we want to have the, the UX being super smooth. It's going to be super simple. Uh, and the only way to do that with a multi-factor authentication access to the wallet is to go via a secure device today. Um, and, and that's why we have an app today because you want to be able to use device biometrics. There wants to be a sort of a tie to the phone that people are carrying around. 
Uh, of course, we're using pin code, etc. So we're doing several factors, and we could also use other ways of, of further um, adding further authenticators to access the uh, the 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 wallet. But and and we haven't built out all technical functionality that we could have tied to this. But I think if you have a cloud-based wallet, then you can start tiering. So you could say, okay, in these situations, you need to bring up your app to access the wallet because this is a high security one. But you could also have in parallel with that a web plugin in your browser for low security cases, meaning that you can do sort of, it could be sort of the next generation uh, password manager. Um, and even more importantly, I would say going forward, we're not going to see, I think, that the phone being the primal device, the prime device it is today. I think we're going to see much more other types of wearables. And so if you have another wearable, you can get the same authentication, multi-factor authentication quality you get from a phone, but you can get it from a ring or a wristband or whatever. So I think from that perspective as well, to to to, to have a cloud-based wallet, I think, is is in combination with some sort of token or, or or a physical asset that you have and that just tied to you in one way or another that that's the way to go because i do think you need to do both security and simplicity to get really mass adoption final question then because i know we're running a time and I'm, I'm kind of i want to be uh conscious of, of the time that you're spending with us um my final question then is really about uh another question that we tend to obsess about is within our field at least is centralized identity management or, or centralization versus decentralization specifically towards id management so with centralized systems that we're using today you get many of the you know the benefits of you know they've had years to build it into a good user experience but massive trade-offs in terms of uh who's controlling your data ultimately it's the corporations uh, how that data is used um uh things like that and then you get on the other end of the spectrum decentralized um, identity management where it's down to the individual but the trade-offs there like we just mentioned with the wallet is what happens if you use the device do you back up are you managing all of that stuff yourself what's the user experience like etc so where do you, i kind of probably can guess where you sit in this discussion but how do you think about the centralized um, identity management versus decentralized well if you look at it from an orthodox uh, self-sovereign identity perspective, you, you would sort of frown a bit at our solution because we are actually managing the relationship with the user and we're, we're, get, we're, we're making sure that they are maintaining a persistent identity over time within our software. Um, we have a more pragmatic approach to this um, and basically saying that Today, before we have an actual ecosystem that works, the only way to get it to, to work for users and businesses and actually get some sort of initial adoption is to kind of tie all of the things together in the ecosystem so you can bring the whole platform to, to the uh, relationship building between users and businesses. Um, and if we're seeing large-scale adoption of more decentralized systems, then we could opt for focusing on one part of this ecosystem as our value creation and depending on, on where we see sort of that our value is the biggest then we can sort of say okay this is now we have all of this but we're saying we're focusing on the wallet side here or we're focusing on the data matching side or whatever it might be um but we're not there yet i mean so it's going to take time um and so so from our perspective we we are we like the, the underlying idea behind self-sovereign identity, but we think that it's a bit, it's, it, as a concept, it's hard to get there from, from sort of, without sort of moving through steps. And one of these steps is, is, is the one that we have chosen, which we think is the right one. And we're sort of compensating, if you will, for, for our role in this ecosystem by making sure that we have a pledge towards our users that we don't read their data. So we're encrypting the data and they get the data encrypted with a key on their device, meaning that we can't access it. If if they need our help to sort of figure out something about it, they need to give us access. So we are, in terms of their data, we would be a connection just like anybody else, sort of requesting access to their wall so that we can help them out in, in whatever need that would be. So so that's, that's one aspect of, of, of answering your question. And then I think the second one is um, the alternative today is basically giving up everything you 
all the control you have about your identity to one of the really big data hoarders, sort of the giants of Google and Facebook, who create a walled ecosystem where they own everything about you. They control not only your data, but also your access, and they can shut you out if they don't like what you're doing or what you're saying. And in, in, in that situation, there's like the balance of power is so skewed that, that it, it's just not really, I think, long-term sustainable system. And we want to give both businesses and, and, and consumers and users and people a way out of that. Kind of getting the benefits of a social login, for example, like sign up with Google. So the same user experience you could get with our solution, but without having to give away all the metadata that you have about your your web behavior, your browsing behavior, or the the businesses that you're interacting with to Google, in order to get sort of that small uh, win in UX. Thank you for that. So it sounds like a a kind of hybrid step. So I guess yeah. the way that you're seeing it is the self-sovereign is the 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 end goal, if you like, and and your solution is is probably a, a good step forward in that direction, but not a full step in the other camp because there's a concern that users will make that journey with you uh, in a, a short frame of time. It's more likely that you're on a journey with them and you're making these baby steps towards that solution. So it sounds like you're trying to give the best of both worlds, moving away from centralized but uh, you know, on the journey towards being decentralized. So hopefully that that uh, summarizes what you just said much better than I did. Yeah, yeah, I think that that that's exactly right. And I think I think it has to be a stepwise approach because currently the way the internet works, it's really on the opposite side of the spectrum. And in that situation, you need to start building sort of an end-to-end process that works. Once you do that, then you get sort of more adoption towards the future wanted state then you can start focusing on one specific part of this ecosystem and and that that's what that that's what our bet is i mean nobody knows right but but but, but, but that's fun. what we're saying yeah exactly it's that's part of the fun isn't it but yeah again another another uh indication of your kind of pragmatic approach i, I think um anders that's certainly what, what's come across to me on this call but i think that's all we have time for anders i really very much appreciate your time for coming on for giving your perspectives on wallets and identity and credentials, uh, letting us know what you've been working on at TrueID as well. So thanks again for your time and uh, we look forward to getting you on Identity 3 again soon. So thanks again. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this.